where you get the most development is when life gives you challenges. Welcome to episode number 46 on the My Story Podcast. The My Story Podcast features interviews with leaders, influencers, and entrepreneurs, interesting people who tell their stories and the life lessons they've learned along the way. Hi, my name's Conrad Weaver, and I'm so glad you stopped by to listen to today's podcast. What would you do if you were working your dream job and your world is rocked by not one, but two life-changing events? One that may even cost you your life. What would you do? That is where Jennifer Hartman found herself about 10 years ago. Jennifer is the global head of public relations at John Deere Company. Yep, that one, the one with the green tractors. She's my guest today here on the My Story Podcast and will tell her story of how she navigated an unexpected journey that changed her life. Stay tuned for her compelling story. Today's episode is sponsored by the Great American Wheat Harvest Documentary. Follow the amazing life and adventures of harvesting families as they journey across the American plains each year, harvesting the grain that feeds the world. This Emmy award-winning film is streaming on Amazon Prime Video. Check it out today. And now here's today's episode with Jennifer Hartman. Well, Jen Hartman, welcome to the My Story Podcast. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. It's great seeing you and, and to have this chance to talk to you. Man, we first met at the John Deere manufacturing plant in East Moline. Is that yeah, where, yeah. Is that where it John is? Deere yeah. Harvester Works, where we build our combines. Right. I was working on the Great American Wheat Harvest, and you all were gracious enough to give us an interview. And you're actually in the film. You were a part of it. So uh, that was fun. It's one of the few pictures I of I that I have of me talking on camera, right? So I it's actually on like an online portfolio of mine. Um, yeah. there's a whole bunch of camera equipment set up around me, makes it look like I'm doing a very important interview. Yeah. And you were. You were doing a very important <laughs> interview <laughs> for my little film, The Great yes. American Wheat Harvest. And uh the fun thing is we had we had my friend John Van Allen there to do the lighting. I think he's done a bunch of stuff for you guys yeah. over the last few years. He told me he's working on some projects for you guys. Yeah. So uh, glad I was able to help connect him to you guys. So so we're here to tell your story. And so, Jen, uh, who are you and what do you do? Oh, wow. So <laughs> I'm the public relations and social media director for John Deere. Like the global John the Deere? Global like the global John Deere Wow. Um, interestingly enough, I assumed this position one year ago on March 1st, 2020. So just wow. two weeks prior, of course, to the pandemic and, and all of the chaos that ensued. So um, I, I joke that I've been in the role one year, but have gained 10 years of experience in that time. <laughs> I'm sure. Did you start working from home you know, pretty much right away or did you, were you able to go into the office? You know, I, when you, when you look back at that time, it's so interesting, isn't it? That I think a lot of us, you're in a little bit of disbelief mm -hmm. and it all felt so temporary. You know, right. I remember the NBA games being called first right. and Tom Hanks having COVID. And then yeah. at Deer, we just kind of went home thinking it was going to be for a couple of weeks to mm -hmm. watch the kids. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, at Deer, 
we have production facilities all over the world. And so staying at home wasn't an option Hmm. for a vast majority of our employees. So there was really Hmm. this bizarre transition time of trying to navigate how we keep employees at the Hmm. factories and production going, how we can't build combines from your house. We cannot. (laughs) Right. And so there was these, there were two tracks, right. Of really an intense focus on keeping our production units safe um, and running um, while at the same time, you know, keeping the work going um, for those of Mm -hmm. us that aren't considered essential to the manufacturing process. Yeah. So how did you get to become the PR director for John Deere? What was that? What was that? What was that path like? Where were you born and, and what was your, your journey like? uh, You know, interestingly enough, um, I, grew up in a very small town. It's called Preemption, Illinois. It is, if you blinked your eyes as you drove through it, you wouldn't even know it was there. My house sat literally 12 feet from a corn and soybean field. (laughs) Our house happened to butt up right next to a farmer's field, very rural community, very small high school. My parents both worked at that high school. We lived about a mile from that high school. Um, I want to say I was the third generation to attend that school district. So very close knit, you know, tight family upbringing um, for the most part. But I had dreams of going to the big city. You know, I was one of those kids that we were about three hours from Chicago. I remember going on a sixth grade field trip to, to see Chicago. And I still remember seeing that skyline coming into view from the school bus and just being blown away and something. Was that your first time to see it? It was right. And, and I had never seen a big city before. My parents had never taken me there (laughs) and it triggered something in me. Hmm. And I, whether consciously or subconsciously just dreamed of living in that big city, right. And working Hmm. in that big city. And I, you know, happen to have a really strong affinity and talent for writing and all things English and communications. And I went to Northern Illinois University in DeKalb, Illinois, um, known for its annual corn fest, right? I mean, it is in the middle of- Middle of cornfields. Yeah, absolutely, right? Um, And still set my sights on Chicago and ended up going into public relations, ended up interning downtown Chicago at Edelman PR. But what my sixth grade little mind didn't know is just how expensive it is to live in that big city (laughs) and how little they pay interns um, and really any entry level role at all. So Mm. what really ended up sending my career into the trajectory I'm on now was I got a job as the domestic marketing manager for the Illinois Soybean Association and Checkoff Board. In Bloomington, was that your Illinois. Your first kind of first time in the agriculture world. It was, and I'm going to admit something, Conrad, that I have never admitted because I'm always afraid farmers are going to find out that I don't know as much as I maybe sometimes act like I do. I had to look up what a soybean was. Hmm. Right. I, I I grew up right right next to that corn and soybean field, and I had watching them grow. Right. Right. But I had yeah. no idea what those plants produced. I knew what corn plants were, but I had no idea what soybeans mm-hmm. went into. Right. And so mm-hmm. um, I sure had, you know, I spent a few that years there and my job was to promote alternative uses of soy, everything from environ um, that's marble like countertops to tofu 
um, in, in various food products. So from there, I spent several years with United Way mm -hmm. um, and thought that was going to be, quite frankly, a jumping stone to get to deer. John Deere is very charitable, does a lot of community outreach, a lot of uh, Deere employees volunteer for um, organizations like United Way, but I got fiercely passionate about United Way's mission and what it does for its communities, and then eventually landed at John Deere. I, I actually started at that Harvester Works plant where you and I met. Mm -hmm. um, I had the incredible blessing to start at Deere hosting our gold key tours. So as farmers purchase a new machine, we bring them into the factory to see that manufacturing process in person and even start their own machine on the line for the very first time. And I had the privilege of documenting that, filming that for one of the, the, the harvesters in my film. Well, and it, so. what's, what was such a blessing is I learned very quickly just how emotionally connected people are mm -hmm. to our brand. And so when you see generations of family members coming in to participate in that experience mm -hmm. and the pride so many of those families have in being able to purchase that brand new, very expensive, high quality machine, um, it really ingrained in me just how important the work we do is to so many farm families uh, across the U.S. and around the world. Was it your passion for, for many years to work at Deer? Was that kind of a goal you had? It was, you know, I, I neglected to mention that that small town I grew up in is just about 25 miles south of John Deere World Headquarters. Hmm. We're located here in the Quad Cities, which is, you know, two cities um, in Illinois, two cities on the Iowa side, um, where the Mississippi River runs east and west. And a lot of family members and friends worked for John Deere. Hmm. And, you know, in a, a community like ours growing up, um, that was considered the epitome of employment, right? Whether it was in the factory or in one of the offices, uh, people really aspired to work there. There was a lot of pride in that. When I was interning at Edelman, I, I had to commute from DeKalb back and forth. And, and I remember, you know, setting goals in my head that someday I would be head of PR for John Deere. Wow. That was one of your goals. It was, wow. it just, that's, I aspired to someday be leading the, the PR efforts. And from the time I started at Deer, I kept my eye and, and stayed connected with the current head of mm -hmm. PR at the time. And then eventually had the opportunity to work directly for him as the social media manager. You know, that's an interesting process when you set a goal. I mean, I remember when I first had the idea of creating the Great American Wheat Harvest documentary crazy idea, you know, and I told right. my neighbor that and he was like, what, you're going to do what go out yeah. and follow, you know, what? And I said, this would be fantastic. And so it was, you know, when you set your mind on something and then you begin to, you, you, you kind of watch your life turn in that direction. Is that kind of what your experience was? Absolutely. And you know, it, what's interesting that you say about that a lot of times it's not consciously, right? Right, right. You, you're just, you know, focused on um, watching, learning and experiencing perhaps what, you know, the people before you have done to get there. Right. And, and I found that I was very passionate about the mission of deer and the work it does um, to help humans flourish all over the world and never lost sight of 
ultimately wanting to be there, right? And and I will tell you, <laughs> one year in, um, I think growing up in the Quad Cities and in that surrounding area, many of us that do end up working for deer forget just how global, hmm. how big, how interwoven that company is in terms of, of world politics, the agriculture industry as a whole, the construction industry, the golf industry, um, how important Deer's voice is in the communities where we operate. Um, and so I think I came into the role a bit um, naive, even after spending a couple decades <laughs> thinking about it. Um, and I think that probably worked in my favor. Mm-hmm. Deer has from, you know, giant tractors to small garden tractors. Oh, absolutely. Right. Yeah. And, and, and small holder farmers in, in South Africa, mm-hmm. um, you know, farmers and um, uh, construction operators in China. It has a tremendous global footprint hmm. um, that's really making an impact, um, even in just mechanizing a lot of these regions that previously required, you know, forced labor. Yeah. What did it take for you to, you know, when you started out at Deer, what did it take for you to make that prog- that, that that progress to where you are now? I mean, it, some of it was unconscious or, or, or subconscious, but what was it that drive that really motivated you? You know, for me, I have never been one of those people that can set a small goal. Hmm. You know, sometimes I envy those people that can simply say, I'm going to get in shape. Hmm. You know, I have to set the goal that I'm going to run a marathon. I'm going to do a triathlon. Hmm. I'm going to compete in a fitness competition. Hmm. And I think for me, um, setting my sights on leading John Deere's PR just felt natural. Hmm. It felt like a natural fit. I also think when you face hardships in your life along the way. Um, a goal like a career aspiration or a goal to become the head of PR for Deer doesn't feel insurmountable, hmm. right? It, you know, if you can knock out some of those big goals you've set, like I said, like the triathlon or the marathon. But for me, um, I've had a few situations in my life that personally set me back quite a bit and and made me realize that I can accomplish pretty much anything if I set my mind to it. Hmm. And, let's talk and about that. Let's yeah. talk about that process. What was, what were some of those difficulties that, and challenges that you faced? Yeah, I would say there's two events in my life. And by the way, you know, when you, when you, I, I think you kind of set out your life thinking naively that it's just about setting plans in place and, and setting objectives to achieve those goals. And no one really tells you that in fact, what you, where you get the most development is when life hmm gives you challenges, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And a couple of those challenges really um, changed the trajectory of my life. And that was one, 18 years ago, um, I had my first child, Lyric, who is now 18, Mm -hmm. but who was diagnosed as autistic when she was three. Mm -hmm. And suddenly all those dreams and plans and thoughts you have, right, about what it's going to mean to be a mom or a parent, Um, that gets thrown out the window. Mm. And suddenly you have to quickly adjust to a new way of life, a new way of thinking. And I can tell you that I think the biggest inspiration for me and what has given me so much strength on so many tough days is what I see her take on on a daily basis. Mm. So I always have a hard time talking about this without getting emotional, but when you have a special needs child who on a daily basis is getting the courage 
to take on what so many of us take for granted. It might be getting out of the door in the morning. She suffers from severe anxiety. And a lot of times the world around us and all its chaos can be very overwhelming. Mm -hmm. And witnessing the strength and fortitude and commitment she has had over the years to accomplish great things. I mean, she's on the honor roll. Um, We're preparing for post-college education. And for every accomplishment she has, it reminds me, honestly, Conrad, just how small my challenges are. And it puts those challenges in perspective. And it allows me to reassess <laughs> what I might think is overwhelming in comparison, right? Mm-hmm. And, and to really say, okay, you know, this tough day at work is nothing compared to what Lyric has faced on a daily basis. So I think that's been number one. I think that has allowed me to overcome challenges that perhaps would have felt too much. Mm-hmm. What did you do as a parent when you received that diagnosis? I mean, what what was going through your head and what... And how did you deal with that? How did you walk through that journey? That's a really great question. You know, we knew there was something not quite right. And I think if you talk to any parent who's had a child um, with autism, there's just, you can't put your finger on it, but as a new parent, you don't quite know Mm -hmm. what it is. And I had a friend put a list of symptoms on the dashboard of my car when I was at work one day. And I came out to my car and there was a post-it note that just simply said, I think you need to read this. And it was a mix of absolute relief to feel like I was finally having an explanation for what was happening with my daughter. And then of course, just a an overwhelming sense of what do I do now? Where do I go now? Right. I, I always call parents that are <laughs> parents of special needs. There's this mama lion, papa lion thing that comes out in you, right. Where you just, your, your whole goal is to be fiercely protective and figure this out and, and figure out how to equip your child um, to succeed. And so that's, that's initially how it started. And, and what I found out Conrad is there's not a lot of answers, right. Mm-hmm. And so then that I I just mentioned, right, I'm not, I've never been satisfied with just the status quo and okay, I'll go out and I'll figure this out and I'll just keep asking questions. I started my own nonprofit. Mm, Wow. (laughs) And (laughs) because I decided then and there, I did not want another parent, at least here um, in the community where I live and work in the Quad Cities to face that uncertainty. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to build a community where other parents who had the similar challenges, similar questions, you know, I didn't even know what other parents to turn to. Mm -hmm. So we started a nonprofit. It's called Royal Ball Run for Autism. My daughter at the time was obsessed with all things princes and princesses Mm -hmm. and, and Disney musicals and, and cartoons. So we set out with a mission to make every child on the spectrum with autism feel special mm. and to feel royally special. And so that, that organization is actually celebrating its 10th anniversary this year. Oh, wow. We've given back over a quarter of a million dollars to the local community, to local programs that, that serve parents and children um, touched by autism. But I think more than that, we've built a community mm. of parents. I was going to say, were did that kind of, 
draw out other people who perhaps were in the shadows and didn't want to talk about this? It did, yeah. right? It, I, I feel like all the autism parents in the Quad Cities now know one another. Mm. And the unique thing about autism is all our kids are so different. Mm. So because we've built this network, we can connect new families with parents of children that perhaps are exhibiting some of the same challenges. We're able to connect them with resources that we've all endorsed or have um, found to be helpful. We've identified service providers like lawyers and dentists and doctors and counselors, um, even hairstylists or barbers that work well with kids on the spectrum so that those parents don't have to figure it out on their own. Mm, that's awesome. Yeah. So, and I guess to layer on top of that, while all of that um, was being dreamed up, I found out I had a brain tumor. Oh, wow. So 10 years ago today, right? This is, you know, again, when you look back at your life, you have no idea that what's actually going to shape the life you lead and the, even the career you're in is really based on some of these very profoundly mm. impactful mm. life experiences, right? Mm. And so I was new in my career at Deer. I was navigating a daughter with autism. And we found out that I had um, a brain tumor. Wow. I spent a few years navigating, you know, that, getting answers to that. Thankfully, found out it was likely benign and, and was confirmed to be benign. But if you layer that <laughs> on top of some of the other challenges we were facing with my daughter. Was it overwhelming? It was, it was overwhelming, but suddenly, like I said, all of a sudden career ambitions and the challenges of worked felt so small. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, I was working at a company like Deer that gave me so much room to figure it all out. Um, I saw so much empathy from my colleagues and leadership, unequivocal support and flexibility in figuring out my health, in navigating, you know, what it took to, to parent a child with special needs. And so what grew out of that was a fierce loyalty to, you know, my employer. Mm -hmm. I and, think that's and probably in, in the big corporate world, sometimes that's not the norm, right? If right. You, if you're... If you're having challenges like that, that take you away from work, and I'm assuming it took you away from your job periodically, you know, that would, sure. that would be viewed as, you know, well, she's not doing, she's not pulling her weight and let's, you know, you, you move her out and bring someone else in. Right. I had, so. I, I will never forget. I, I, I went ahead and had surgery at Mayo to have the tumor removed. I of course was chomping at the bit to get back at work and I'll, I'll never forget my, my boss who was the factory manager at Harvester Works at the time when he saw me at my desk the first day back said, why are you back so soon? Right. You know, here I was thinking, oh, I've got to get back. And, and his first question was, you know, what are you doing here? Mm -hmm. Go home, take some time. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think that um, not only being passionate about what deer does, just really finding that home there and that family and, and those, those um, friends that were built through a very difficult time in my life made all the difference. Mm -hmm. What motivates you now? And I know you had some news with 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 that that tumor that was going to impact your mm -hmm. speech, correct? Yeah. 
What we found out is um, it was a, a rare um, tumor called a vagal schwannoma, which is a benign but very problematic tumor that attaches itself to your vagus nerve. Well, your vagus nerve is very mm-hmm. instrumental to the entire health and well-being of of all of us. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think perhaps you know most critically for me, that vagus nerve controls your vocal cords. Mm-hmm. And what I learned in deciding the treatment options is that I really didn't have a lot of great options, right? I was very relieved to learn it was likely benign, but any treatment attempting to um, remove that tumor could result in damage to that nerve and then subsequently damage to your vocal cords. And if your vocal cords are damaged or paralyzed, that prevents your ability even to swallow Wow! without choking. So you'd need like a food, some kind you of would, I, I would have needed a feeding, feeding tube, tube, right? right? right yeah. yeah. Um, mm. I'll, I'll never forget sitting down with our surgeon. I think that's another, you know, all through life, you, you have these presumptions about how life works. <laughs> and then <laughs> as an adult, you find out it is not at all what you were expecting. Mm-hmm. I totally expected to go to Mayo and for them to say, okay, you've got this problematic tumor. Here are the treatment options you have. And it, it was everything from wait and see, which was also problematic because mm-hmm. if that tumor were to grow, that could cause irreversible damage to sure. the nerve. I had gamma knife radiation as an opportunity, mm-hmm. but that's a one-time shot. If it doesn't fully work, mm-hmm. you've got to you know, think about what's next or allow that nerve to eventually damage to the point, again, you lose use of your vocal cords. And then third was to have the surgery. And I thought, here's some of the preeminent surgeons in the world. They'll tell me what to do. Hmm. And they didn't. (laughs) (laughs) And you had to make the decision. Uh, It was absolutely left up to me and my husband to decide. We heard, I, I asked a lot of questions. I asked, what are the odds if I choose surgery that I will need a feeding tube? that I will, that the damage will be so bad that I I won't be able to speak or swallow and I'll need that fighting tube. And he told me there was uh, up to 90% chance that I would need that feeding tube. But you know what, Conrad, at the time I had just come off thinking that I had a brain tumor, which I thought was a death sentence. Mm -hmm. Prior to my diagnosis, I'd never heard of benign brain tumors. Mm -hmm. And so in my mind, I thought, you know what? I'm still here. Hmm. I, I had an autistic daughter who needed me to stick around. I was figuring out between the time we had that conversation until the surgery, how I could communicate with her via an iPad. Hmm. But we walked out of that meeting and it's the first time I ever, it was as close to fainting as I've ever come, but my legs just completely gave out from under hmm. me. It was so much to take in. Um, and so much to navigate prior to that decision. I will never forget because it was 100% my choice. I remember being, you know, saying goodbye to my family. Um, we had a lot of family that came up to be there for me. Um, we had a little room that we all went into. And just this overwhelming sense that it was the last time I might say, I love you mm. out loud. And I remember being wheeled back to be prepped for surgery. And there was this wall right before those big doors that open. 
And I remember having this overwhelming urge to just put my hand out (laughs) and stop and say, I've changed my mind. Take me back. I want to keep talking. I'll take my chances. But as not only luck would have it, but the tremendous skill set of those surgeons at Mayo, I woke up and was able to at least semi-whisper, semi-speak when I woke up. And I knew from that moment on my recovery would be promising. Mm -hmm that it wouldn't be quite as daunting as I thought. And it it took a few months um, to regain that ability to fully speak and swallow, but my nerve, um, you know, fully healed. And thankfully in the career I'm in, and now here I am, I'm in a job where I'm talking to people like you quite frequently, um, giving interviews, certainly communicating is such an integral part of what we all do every day. And I think as much as anything, that ability to communicate with my daughter has been the greatest blessing of all. Mm. Wow. And you're coming up on an anniversary for that, from that, right? Yeah. So, you know, gosh, all of this is culminating at the same time, right? This is my one year anniversary in my current role, 10 year anniversary for Royal Ball Run for Autism Mm -hmm. and 10 year anniversary for, uh, you know, surviving, (laughs) With my vocal cords fully intact, that diagnosis of a brain tumor. So this is a pretty big year for me. Hmm. And as challenging as the last year has been, I'm just filled with an overwhelming sense of gratitude um, for where my life has taken me, where those challenges have perhaps shifted my focus and made me really put everything in perspective. You know, there was that old book, right? Don't sweat the small stuff. It's all small stuff. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, these past 10 years, there's never been a truer, truer philosophy. Yeah. Let me ask you this in all of the things that you've done, who has been some of the the people who have most influenced you? Mm. That's a really great question. I would say the person that has most influenced me is my daughter, Lyric. For all the reasons I've shared with you, but she reminds me on a daily basis, we all have a greater purpose. Hmm. We all have a greater purpose than what our bank statement reads, (laughs) um, what our job title says about us, what colleagues, friends, and neighbors think of us. You know, some of the most interesting conversations I've had with Lyric are those day-to-day moments where we question, where she questions what we all kind of follow just because it's how the world works and we don't question it. Mm -hmm. Some of the most profound conversations I've had with her have had to do with things like whether she should get braces or not. You know, and, 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 and I, I have said things to her like, well, you know, we really should get to the dentist so that we can get you started on braces. And she'll ask, you know, what are braces? (laughs) Well, they, they straighten your teeth and she'll look at me and say, why do I need to straighten my teeth? Hmm. And all of a sudden you have this moment, like you're trying to explain to this young lady who has no 
ambitions or aspirations or sense of of what physical beauty mm. means. Mm-hmm. And as her parent, I find myself saying, like, as you're starting to say, so that you look prettier, mm. you know, why do we do these things, right? Mm-hmm. Conversations with her about, well, if you're so scared to get up on stage and do that presentation, mom, why are you doing it? Mm. And why do I need to wear makeup? Mm-hmm. Right. And so as, as her parent, I find myself kind of questioning all of these, you know, societal expectations that we put on young women, especially on what it means to be beautiful. And, and she's challenged me back, you know, if there's, let's say, you know, for her senior pictures, Lyric, we should probably do your hair or you should wear this outfit well, why mom? Well, because, you know, I want you to look beautiful. And she's standing there in her Star Wars t-shirt saying, don't I already look beautiful? Right? How can you answer Um, that? How can you come back to that? Of course you're beautiful. (laughs) You are perfect just the way you are. Mm. Um, The other, you know, profound thing that inspires me about her is just her innate belief and her, her sense of purpose and connection to a greater faith. Hmm. She just unquestionably trusts Hmm. that there's a greater power Mm -hmm. and she doesn't question it Hmm. and she feels it and she senses it. I remember we were, um, when I got married to my husband, I was converting to become Catholic And Lyric was seven or eight at the time. And I had a lot of questions with our priest about, you know, how do I help her transition to the Catholic faith? She learns differently. She thinks differently. And we were blessed with a priest who just absolutely believed and told me, Jennifer, I I believe children with autism are closer to God than any of us. They just have uh, an innate sense of faith. But tell you what, I want you to go home with your husband. And when you're saying prayers at night, I want you to talk about the sacraments and taking communion. And if you believe and you trust that she understands what it means to take that communion, then for all intents and purposes, I would consider her ready. Mm -hmm. So that very night, we went home and we have a, a dear friend who is atheist and has made it well known that he does not believe in God, even kind of ribs her and our family, you know, for going to church. And my husband started talking to her about taking communion and and explained it to her to say, you know, when you take that bread, that means you're putting Jesus in your heart. And she immediately sat up and said, we need to get some of that bread for our friend. Hmm. And my husband looked at me and said, (laughs) I think she gets it, right? And it's those moments, right, that just remind you that we all should set aside some of the societal norms that that the world puts on us, be true to who we are, and to trust things that maybe we can't always explain, Mm -hmm. but turn it over to a higher power of greater Mm -hmm. faith or a sense of belief that we don't control it all. Mm -hmm. Um, And so 
to answer your question, the person who inspires me on a daily basis in life and work um, and in faith um, is my daughter, Lyric. Wow. You know, it's amazing what we can learn from someone so young. Yes. You know, who's not had all the experiences that we've had, you know, doesn't have the wisdom that we have. And I think sometimes we miss out on learning from them when we maybe ignore them and ignore their, their craziness sometimes, you know, there's so much we can learn from a younger generation that if we just stop and listen. Absolutely. Absolutely. We have, and I think in the age of digital and social media and echo chambers, we all live in, um, I think it's more important than ever for us to be more inclusive mm-hmm. and, and, and have a greater sense of appreciation for differing perspectives, mm-hmm. young and old. Sure. Right? So speaking of social media, how has, I kind of, kind of turning the subject here a little bit. Sure. How have you seen communication change in the past 10 years? Gosh, you know, in the age of digital communication, I feel like communication changes on a weekly basis. The pace in which we are all moving so fast and furiously to get our message out, to break through the clutter. And I say that from a marketing and and professional communicator, um, the demands that are on companies and brands in today's world has pivoted in astronomical ways, not only in the tools we use to communicate, but the speed in which we're expected to communicate. Mm -hmm. You know, when I look at my predecessor at John Deere, who was the director of PR for 21 years and how timely (laughs) and fortuitous it was for him to retire on February 28th, 2020, Even in that time, since we experienced the pandemic, the murder of George Floyd and the upheaval that happened in our country following some of the riots that that subsequently followed to the political dynamics that are happening in um, whether it's in media or across social, there is a growing expectation that brands need to take a position. And so whether it's on um, social and cultural issues like race relations and racial equality or environmental issues that are um, certainly gaining a lot more attention, international relations political affiliations, I think the demands on communicators have become tenfold, if not a hundredfold. Because it makes you have to make sure you're doubly sure to parse every word, every, everything that you put out as the PR director for John Deere could implicate the entire business, correct? Yeah. You know, someone asked me on, on my Twitter feed yesterday, What's the biggest lesson I've learned in the past year? And I have always tended to be an idealist. I tend to think very optimistically. My family even grow up used to call me save the world, Jennifer. 
because I just thought, you know, all we needed to do was go out and save the whales, right? I went into this job a year ago, I think naively assuming that we had this amazing opportunity to just start sharing more proactively all the great stories that deer has to tell because we have so many rich stories to share, so many incredible employees to showcase, so many incredible innovations happening. Um, And the work, of course, our customers in the construction and farming and forestry and golf industries, so many incredible purposeful, impactful work they're doing on a daily basis. And I thought, my gosh, as soon as I get that job, I remember someone saying, what are you going to do first? And I said, I'm going to start saying yes. I am going to say yes to more storytelling. Yes to getting the word out. And what I quickly learned is that the complexities that are involved in communicating in today's very divisive environment is incredibly challenging. I found that there is almost this black and white, good or evil, yes or no Mm -hmm. approach to brands and companies on where they stand. Mm -hmm. There is no gray area. There is a rush by the media to tell one side of the story. Mm -hmm. And an absolute resistance for what I would call, you know, the 5% of some of the loudest voices on social on either side of the political spectrum to identify who the bad companies are (laughs) and who the good companies are. And by the way, both sides disagree on who those Mm -hmm. companies and brands are. Right. So I think my naive presumption that if I could just help tell that story, we could really help amplify not only Deer's story, but the ampl- to amplify the incredible work of the ag industry. Mm-hmm. And, and you became very familiar with that with your documentary sure. on custom harvesti- harvesting. Yeah. You got to see firsthand mm-hmm. just how critically important food production really is. Mm-hmm. And the deeply committed individuals across this country and around the world to produce healthy, mm-hmm. abundant food that gets on our tables, right, yeah. every year, um, that's a, a an industry we should be celebrating. Certainly, there are challenges, but again, there are folks that have decided that it's an industry we need to demonize, mm-hmm. right? And so that idealistic Pollyanna nature I tend to have, boy, I spent, you know, a few months, if not several months, um, reeling a bit Mm. about coming to terms with there isn't going to be one answer here. And there isn't going to be a clear set of direction or, you know, what what I learned about um, what it means to be a successful PR practitioner, I think has evolved dramatically in the past year alone, not just the past 10 years, but the past year. Wow. And probably will continue to evolve as who knows what the future holds, right? I mean, right. you know, yeah. 2021 
starting out with a bang. <laughs> and, and, it is. So. And you know, for a company and, and for a company I love so dearly um, that has really preferred to lay low mm-hmm. to kind of humbly, quietly go about doing the work it, that needs to take place. And by the way, investing in our communities, um, contributing significant amounts um, um, to corporate citizenship efforts. Um, it's not our nature hmm. to trumpet those mm-hmm. um, initiatives. And even in, and a, yet, in a year when you probably had some tremendous losses as a company. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. But the world's certainly changed. And I think for me, it it at the end of the year over Christmas, I really t- took some time to do some introspection um, and to recognize that as ambitious as I am, <laughs> I need to accept the fact that I can only do as much as we can um, to continue to celebrate um, the industries we serve and to tell our stories in a very open and honest way. And honestly, in some cases, Conrad, it almost hurts to say it out loud, let the chips fall where they may. I'm yeah. not going to change the minds right. of folks that have already made sure. up their minds about us yep. or about companies and corporations in general. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, speaking of stories, you know, I want to, first of all, thank you for telling your story. And so I always like to wrap up an interview with, with this question. I'm a filmmaker. And when are you making a documentary or a movie, you write a log line and uh, that long line is that description of the film. So when the movie about Jen Hartman is made, what will the log line be? Am I talking in third person here? <laughs> sure. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Boy, I'm going to talk in first person because okay. I'm going to say I grew up in a small rural community with big ambitions and big dreams and found out that what really matters And what would help me achieve those big dreams comes right back to home and right back to family and that it's all interconnected. It isn't leaving rural living behind to go to the big city or getting the dream job and achieving everything I had hoped for. It all comes back to home. Mm -hmm. And what really matters. Wow. Yeah. And if I could just stay mindful of that. Yeah. Yeah. No kidding. Right. (laughs) If all of us could stay mindful of that. So final question, what's the, what's the next big thing for you? I'm going to assume this is not an uncommon um, ambition for many communicators, but I have, I have two dreams left and one of them is I want to give a Ted talk. And the TED Talk I'm dreaming of would be my daughter and I on stage Mm -hmm. together to both speak about lessons learned as a mom and daughter navigating a chaotic world (laughs) with Mm -hmm. very different viewpoints and perspectives about what that means when it comes to daily challenges. Mm -hmm. And my second dream is to write a book. And Ironically enough, um, you know, 
even coming back to the conversation you and I have had today about how so many of those even small but pivotal moments or decisions you make in your life are what matter most. It's not the school you choose to go to. It's not the internship you take. It's not the job title you have. Um, it's those life moments that we all experience that really shape who you are and even how you are, how successful you are in life and work. Very good. So remind me who your organization is and how can people get in touch with that organization or how can they contribute to it? Yeah. So the organization is Royal Ball Run for Autism and that's the royalballrun.com is our website you can find us on Facebook as well. Um, you know, I, I guess I would say a, a, another dream of mine is to, to see Royal Ball runs happen across the country and, and to see um, more small knit communities being built around families, parents and children touched by autism. So I, I welcome um, anyone to reach out and connect with me on how, how to do just that. Well, Jen, thank you so much for taking time to talk with me on the, on the, my story podcast. I really appreciate you, your candor and just telling your story and, uh, the amazing story that you have and congratulations on all your success and thank you, you know, and your future endeavors as well. I'm so honored you asked. I, I was such an admirer of, of the work you did with the documentary on custom harvesters and, and just feel blessed to have had this chance to talk with you again today. Great. Thank you. Jennifer, thank you so much for sharing your story. I wish you the very best this year, and I'm sure we'll be seeing you and your daughter on the TED stage very soon. Next time on the My Story podcast, Dr. J.J. Peterson will be joining us for a conversation about story, kind of appropriate for the My Story podcast. Dr. Peterson is the Chief of Teaching and Facilitation at StoryBrand. He's also the co-host of the very popular Business Made Simple podcast with Donald Miller. Be sure to join me next week for this inspiring interview. Hey, if you enjoy what you hear on the show, please leave a review and a rating. This lets me know what you like and how I can improve the show. I also encourage you to send this episode to a friend or colleague who may be interested in hearing today's show. The music on today's show is from my friend, Drew Davidson. You can get all of his music at iTunes or Spotify or at drewdavidson.com. And if you like what you heard today, be sure to hit the subscribe button so you don't miss another episode. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you again next time on the My Story Podcast. <laughs>